0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence against children and adults. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Digne is one of the most beautiful towns in southeastern France, nestled among picturesque mountains and divided by the shining river Blayon. It's the kind of place where you can spend hours just sitting quietly taking in the view. At least on most days. But back in November 1953, tranquility was the last thing on Gustav Domenici's mind. As he sat in the police station, trying to ignore the sounds of the rabid journalists outside, all he could think about was his family. For over a year, Police Commissioner Edmund Sebay had hounded the Domenici family about a triple murder that happened near their property. The Commissioner showed up again and again, day after day, asking the same questions. Each time, Gustave told the investigator he didn't know anything. But Commissioner Sebay wouldn't take no for an answer. His suspicion was relentless and it had taken a toll on Gustav. The 34-year-old farmer felt like a shell of his former self, and he was starting to think there was no way out. If he didn't put a stop to the questions now, he'd spend the rest of his life being watched by the police. So he swallowed the lump in his throat and stood. It was time to come clean. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. I'm Carter Roy. Today, we're finishing the story behind The Dominici Affair. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on— Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T E R M I N I X.com. Down. So, to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, get 30, get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It had been less than a month since the murders... And Police Commissioner Edmond Sibet was already exhausted by the Drummond murder case. He'd spent weeks trying to crack the eerie code of silence in the village of Lures. His aggressive interrogation tactics hadn't gotten him the confession he wanted, but they had helped him narrow down his suspects. Maybe a little too quickly. To some in the French press, his investigation appeared single-minded, even biased. It didn't seem like Sabey had considered many suspects. Instead, he doubled down on the Dominicis, the family of farmers who discovered the Drummond's bodies. The head of the family was 77-year-old Gaston, a grumpy, vulgar old man. He took any opportunity to lash out at his wife, Marie. Their blundering 33-year-old son, Gustave, also lived with them. He was firmly wrapped around the finger of his 23-year-old wife, Yvette. And finally, there was Clovis, Gustave's older brother, who lived away from the family in another part of the village. Sabé believed the Dominicis were hiding something. Their stories were full of holes, and at some points, matched each other nearly word for word. So, despite the backlash from the press, Sabay continued to pursue the Dominicis. He was convinced he was on the right path until he received a letter that changed everything. The letter arrived in late August. It told the police to investigate one of the Dominicis' neighbors, Paul Maillet. He was a friend of the family and a secretary in the local division of the Communist Party the same group that was defending the Dominicis in the press. Sabey was probably surprised. Paul Maillet hadn't really been on his radar, but by that point, he'd follow any lead he could, so he got to work obtaining a search warrant for Maillet's home. In the meantime, the police did their best to track down the anonymous letter writer. It's not clear exactly how they found her, but it turned out to be a local lavender farmer, she told detectives she'd seen the murder weapon, the World War II carbine, hanging on Paul Maillet's kitchen wall a couple of years earlier. Well, with that, Sebay got his warrant, and on August 29th, the police turned Maillet's farmhouse upside down. While they didn't find anything directly connected to the Drummond murders, they did turn up evidence of other minor crimes— Maillet was stealing electricity directly from the town's power grid, and more importantly, police found two British submachine guns stashed away. As we mentioned in the last episode, it was fairly common for French farmers to scavenge military weapons after World War II. Though this was technically illegal, the police generally looked the other way. But they weren't going to make an exception for Maillet. He was cornered. Sebe threatened to haul him off to jail on weapons charges, unless, of course, he cooperated with their investigation. Maillet was torn. In Lourdes, it was taboo to speak ill of a neighbor. There was also a general distrust of men like Sebe, police officers from the big city. On the other hand, Maillet couldn't afford to go to jail, and he didn't want to defend a murderer either. So ultimately, he told the commissioner everything he knew. According to Maillet, Gustav Dominici confessed to him in private that he'd heard 10 year old Elizabeth Drummond screaming on the night of the murders. Now, this directly contradicted what Gustav had been telling Sebay for the past three weeks. But there was more. When Maillet asked Gustav where he'd heard the screams, Gustav told him he was standing outside. In a clover patch by his house again that was not the story gustav had been telling the police up until that point he'd insisted he'd only heard gunshots that night not screams and he'd said he was too frightened by the gunfire to go outside and investigate and the last thing my said was the most chilling he claimed that little elizabeth was still alive when Gustave found her. though he considered Gustave a friend, Maye was disgusted that Gustav hadn't gone for help immediately. It was a horrific revelation but Sabey must have felt vindicated. It all did come back to the Dominici family just like he knew it would. Gustave had stonewalled him in the past but Sabey hoped he would fold in the face of Maye's testimony, he set up another interrogation in October 1952. The questioning began exactly as it had before. Sabey pressed Gustav about when and how he discovered Elizabeth's body, and the farmer stuck to his previous story. So Sabey tipped his hand. He revealed that they'd been talking to Paul Maillet, who'd made some serious accusations. Sibet poked and prodded until Gustav finally insisted that Maillet was mistaken. He'd never said anything like that. It wasn't much of a rebuttal, but Sibet knew he had a he-said-he-said he said situation on his hands. After all, Maillet was trying to avoid being sent to jail on illegal weapons charges. Maybe he'd made the whole thing up, taking advantage of Sibet's bias against the Dominices. Well, that might have thrown a different investigator, but Sabey was too headstrong to doubt himself. He and his team had already vetted Maillet, He had a much more believable alibi the night of the murders than the Dominici's, and he didn't strike Sabey as someone who would sell out his friend, unless he was telling the truth. So the commissioner pressed Gustav with more questions. After a few hours, everyone was exhausted. According to a Virginia Quarterly Review article by historian Gordon Wright, at one point, an officer lamented that for every hour they grilled Gustav, they only got a minute of useful testimony. Still, Sabe wasn't deterred. By the end of the marathon interrogation, he managed to get Gustav to change his story. He revealed that he had heard the little girl crying that morning. And when he found her lying in the grass, he saw her left arm twitch. Afterward, he sprinted back to the farmhouse and told his wife and mother everything. He also told his older brother, Clovis. Apparently, it was Clovis who advised Gustav to lie to the police about when he discovered the bodies. So they waited. And then, after Gustav's usual chore time they asked Olivier to alert the police. Sebay could hardly believe it. Practically the entire Dominici family was aware a 10-year-old girl lay on the verge of death outside their door, yet they chose to ignore her. Gustave was arrested at 2 a.m. on October 16, 1952, the next day, Sibay returned to Lures to consult with the doctors who did the post-mortem examination. He was hoping the autopsy results would confirm Gustav's story. That Elizabeth hadn't died right away and he'd found her alive. If it was true, it would be a major step toward figuring out what really happened to the Drummonds. But they couldn't. To Sibay's shock the doctors had serious doubts that Gustav was telling the truth. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices On October 16, 1952, Edmund Sabay made his first arrest in what the press now called the Dominici Affair. 33 year old Gustav Dominici was taken into custody in connection to the murders of Jack, Anne, and Elizabeth Drummond. Gustav had admitted he'd found Elizabeth, the Drummond's 10 year old daughter, severely hurt but still alive early on August 5th. Yet instead of rushing to get her medical attention, he'd asked an acquaintance, Jean-Marie Olivier, to alert the police. Gustave claimed he did this to avoid getting mixed up in a murder investigation. But when Sibet tried to corroborate this new version of events, he only found more contradictions. According to the doctors who examined the Drummond's bodies, little Elizabeth was beaten around the same time that her parents were shot. They agreed with Sibet's original theory that Elizabeth witnessed her parents being murdered and tried to escape, then was quickly caught by the killer. They were adamant. There was no way Gustave could have seen Elizabeth's arm twitch if he had discovered her that morning. She would have been dead by then. But if he'd found the girl earlier than that, Sabey realized what it meant. Either Gustav's memory was unreliable, or he did see Elizabeth alive, only it happened earlier in the night. Whatever the truth was, he was finally in Sebey's custody, and the commissioner likely knew it was only a matter of time before Gustav cracked. So, instead of pursuing a different theory, Sebey threatened Gustav with a lesser charge to persuade him to cooperate— just like he'd done with Paul Maillet. The examining magistrate charged Gustav with, quote, failing to give due assistance to a person in trouble. But even this didn't get him to change his story. So the prosecution took him to court. In November 1952, Gustav was convicted for failing to assist Elizabeth, but only sentenced to two months in jail, And since he'd already spent more than a month in custody, he only had one more to go. Sabé was now faced with a decision. Continue to pursue the Dominicis or explore other theories circulating in the press. Now, we mentioned last time that some left-wing newspapers had spread rumors that one of the victims, Jack Drummond, was a spy working for the British government. Sibet seems to have dismissed the theory completely. In fact, he ignored a huge aspect of the Dominici Affair. The victims themselves. So, journalists rushed to do what the police wouldn't. They looked into the Drummond family to figure out why someone might want them dead. The basic facts of Jack Drummond's life were easy to dig up. His parents died when he was young, and he was raised by his aunt and uncle, who nurtured his love of nature and gardening. Jack graduated from East London College and became a biochemist. From there, he tried to join the army, but was denied due to a heart condition. Instead, he became a researcher and pioneer in the new field of nutritional science. He grew to be a respected expert known for his engaging lectures. His wife, Anne, worked as his secretary before the pair married. Shortly afterward, Jack's career took off. Jack Drummond held a number of government positions, advocating for a healthier diet for the British public. During World War II, he traveled all over the world as an advisor, consulting with allied states on nutrition. And around this time, in 1942, little Elizabeth was born. We don't know much more about the Drummonds, but according to their friends, the family couldn't have been happier. Jack and Anne loved their daughter, and they seemed to have a healthy marriage. There was no indication of infidelity, and Anne traveled with her husband whenever she could. Like how many conspiracy theories are born, the press, trying to find an exciting angle, spiced up the Drummonds' life with some wild assertions. Jack was purported to be a master with modern guns, while Anne was suspected of being a secret agent for the British Navy. Some even alleged that Jack had been to the village of Lures before, and because there was a chemical factory nearby during World War II, the theory developed that Jack was somehow involved in producing chemical weapons. Now, as far as we can confirm, these rumors are just that. Rumors. But who knows what Sebay might have been able to dig up on the Drummonds had he been able to tear himself away from the Dominicis. Instead, he settled in for a war of attrition against the Dominici family. While Gustave was in jail, he started turning up at the farm almost every day. No doubt his presence infuriated the family. It was obvious what Sabey was doing, this time he wasn't going to let their endless denials wear him down he would wear them down instead he'd stand by the stables as old gaston tended to the livestock he'd watch as gustav's wife yvette did the laundry and he wouldn't always bring up the murders sometimes he made idle small talk as if he was simply out for a stroll Sabé paid special attention to the Dominici's personalities, looking for an inn. He quickly realized that despite being only 23, Yvette was sharp and self-assured. She had no patience for Sabé and was too careful to slip up around him. Gaston's wife, Marie, didn't say much either. She didn't want to know what was going on and she had little to offer but complaints about her husband. Which were mostly valid, because Sibet found Gaston to be one of the most abrasive men he'd ever met. The 77-year-old patriarch had absolutely no manners. He seemed to only take pleasure in ordering people around, criticizing them, or barking insults. The coarse attitude made Gaston come off as ignorant and proud. But he had a sly side, too. Oddly enough, he alone seemed to take Sabey's presence in stride, while the rest of the family made it clear Sabey was not welcome. Gaston typically acted unbothered by the commissioner's presence, so Sabey took the opportunity to cozy up to the old man. Sometimes, they drink and gossip through the nights. A few times, Sabey even stayed for dinner, but in the end, it was all an act. Gaston knew Sabey was trying to get him to say something about the murders, and Sabey got the impression that Gaston was only entertaining him because he got a kick out of withholding information. He liked to watch the commissioner squirm. Now that's not to say all of Sabey's interactions were mundane. On one of his first visits, he confronted Gaston about his son's failure to get help for Elizabeth. The commissioner pointed out it wasn't just Gustave who didn't act. Gaston's wife and daughter-in-law had also lied to police to avoid getting involved. According to Martin Kitchen's book, The Dominici Affair, at the mention of his wife Marie, Gaston flew off the handle, shaking his cane in the air and cursing her. Not for the first time, he called her a sardine. He claimed that if Gustave had come to him he'd have told his son to get help immediately. Somehow, Sebé doubted this. It seemed more like the bluster of an angry old man, one who took any opportunity to insult his wife and shift the blame away from himself. 77-year-old Gaston was proving to be a tougher nut to crack than even his son. It was time for a new tactic, what Sabey really wanted to do was haul every single Dominici down to the station and wear them down through interrogation. But French law made this difficult, and Sabey's superiors wouldn't allow it. So this time, finally, the commissioner backed off. Once Gustave was released from jail, Sabey stayed away from the family for a couple of months. In fact, he left Lures and returned to the big city, There, he holed up in his office in Marseille and scoured hundreds of pages of interview transcripts. He was desperately searching for something he'd missed, anything that might confirm the Dominici's guilt. He even swallowed his pride and asked his father for help. Sibet Sr. was a retired detective with years of experience working cases in the French countryside. His father leapt at the invitation Fully immersing himself in the Dominici affair. And ultimately, he agreed with his son. He may not have been completely certain that the Dominicis were the culprits, but he was sure they knew more than they were saying. Sebei Sr. pointed out his son's crucial mistake. The family was a lot smarter than Sebei gave them credit for. Yes, their frequent backpedaling and somewhat nonsensical accounts made them seem like fools at times. But Sabay's father believed they knew exactly what they were doing. They were feeding into the commissioner's biases about rural folk, stringing him along the entire time. There was a saving grace, according to Sabay's father. Unlike his stubborn father or his self-assured wife... Gustave was genuinely frightened by the police and Sabey Sr. was betting the recent jail time had scared him all the more. Sabey Sr. believed that attitude made it less likely that Gustave murdered anyone, but he could have been convinced to cover for someone else in the family. Maybe his brother, Clovis. Maybe his father, Gaston. And that would explain why even after hours of interrogation, Gustav's final story still didn't make sense. So, in January 1953, when Sabey finally returned to Lures, he was as hard-headed as ever. The Dominices couldn't have been happy to hear he was back, but while Sabey was away, they'd found a new mutual enemy... Paul Maillet. The Dominicis knew Maillet was the one who ratted on Gustave for failing to get medical attention for Elizabeth. That betrayal sparked a massive feud between the neighbors, ruining a 50-year friendship. Maillet had handed Gustave to the police on a silver platter, and the move earned him one of the worst possible reputations one can have in a small town. An attention seeker with a big mouth. But that wasn't all. Despite the police confirming his alibi on the night of the killings, the Dominicis told everyone that Maie owned the murder weapon. He was caught between a rock and a hard place. Some people shunned him because they believed he was the murderer, while others simply hated him for cooperating with the police. The Dominicis took to calling Maie Sebe, he was ignored at work and got a flood of threatening letters in the mail. He was used as an example. And the message to everyone in the village was clear. Keep your mouth shut or else. Apparently in Lures, being a snitch was worse than being an accused murderer. Because one night, as Mae drove home, he was nearly decapitated In his book, The Dominici Affair, Murder and Mystery in Provence, author Martin Kitchen wrote that someone had stretched a metal wire, almost invisible to the naked eye, across the road. Maillet's motorcycle hit it and he was thrown into the dirt. If he'd been driving any faster, he could have died. Yet despite all the harassment, it felt like Maillet had violated the village code of silence for nothing, Because once again, Sabay's case was at a standstill, and the campaign against Maillet ensured that nobody else would talk to the police commissioner. Sebe was back at square one, and the authorities had reached a breaking point. They wanted the case closed before the media criticism got too loud, by any means necessary. Replacing Sabay would only fan the flames... So they put their trust in the commissioner one last time. He promised them that he could break the Dominicis. He just needed total control. By July 1953, Commissioner Edmund Sibay had been investigating the Drummond family murders for nearly a year, yet he'd made almost no progress. Still, he insisted he could salvage the case. And soon, a chance meeting with the French Minister of Justice changed everything. The minister was impressed by Sabey's perseverance, and as a conservative... He saw the case, as many did, as a battle between the police and the communists, communists who supported the Dominicis. Nailing the Dominicis would be bad press for the Communist Party, so the minister promised to obey the government's full support and greater legal authority. Up until then, his interrogations had to be approved by one of his superiors, an examining magistrate. But now, Sibet was given what was called a rogatory commission, which put him on par with an examining magistrate. He could interrogate whoever he wanted for however long he wanted, without anyone raising a fuss. The first thing he did was re-interview everyone he could in lures, including a few witnesses he'd only spoken to at the start of the investigation like Jean Ricard, a traveling salesman who passed by the crime scene around 7 a.m. the morning after the murders. Ricard caught a glimpse of the bodies just before the local police arrived 15 minutes later. The first time Sebay talked to him, almost a year earlier, he didn't even bother to take notes about their meeting. But now he was finally paying attention, and it's a good thing he was. When Ricard described the scene this time, the commissioner spotted a new discrepancy. Ricard insisted he saw Anne Drummond's body at the crime scene partially covered by a blanket, feet facing up beside the station wagon. Another passing witness who'd been ignored was Faustan Rohr. He claimed that he saw the body beside the station wagon, like Ricard had said, Only Roar couldn't tell which way she was facing because her body was completely covered by the blanket, feet and all. She was in an entirely different second position. And when local police found the Drummonds 15 minutes later, Anne's remains were face down and further away from the station wagon. If what these men said was true and had been moved twice before the local police got to the crime scene. Sabe immediately suspected one of the Dominicis had meddled with the scene, but he still didn't have enough to make an arrest. Even if he could get a family member to confess to moving the body, well, that wouldn't prove they'd actually killed anyone. Still, it was the only option he had left. Sibay and another magistrate decided they would ambush the Dominici family one last time and haul them in for the longest interrogation yet. But they wouldn't do it right away. Despite a mandate from his superiors to close the investigation quickly, Sibay bided his time. Instead of doing the interrogations in July, they delayed their plans. After all, he'd mused, Summer was a time for rest and relaxation. Then came the wine harvest, which shouldn't be sullied by the stress of a police investigation. All in all, Sebay didn't make his final move until November 12, 1953. When the day arrived, Sibet turned up to the Dominici farmhouse bright and early. Gustave's wife Yvette wailed and Gaston shouted curses as the commissioner dragged Gustave and his brother Clovis down to the station. It was now or never. Gustave's interrogation was first. Once again, he said he heard gunshots on the night of the murders but didn't investigate them, then found Elizabeth's body at 5.30 a.m. when he got up to do chores. This time, Sabe brought Paul Maillet, Jean Ricard, and Faustan Rohr into the room to confront Gustave face-to-face and contradict details in his story. It worked. Maillet got him to admit he'd heard more than gunshots. He heard little Elizabeth crying out, too. Another witness got him to confess he'd gone outside at 4 a.m. and seen Elizabeth breathing, not at 5.30 and finding her dead. The questioning lasted at least seven hours. By the end, Gustav was on the verge of tears. Sibet allowed him a 90-minute break, then it was back to the interrogation room. The time to himself hadn't done Gustav much good, which was what Sibet planned on. Gustav could hardly talk and started repeating that he knew nothing. But Sabey was done playing games. He questioned Gustave relentlessly until midnight. Then, the farmer broke down. He confessed that he had indeed moved Anne's body. He claimed he only did it while trying to figure out whether she was alive or not. Sabey couldn't believe that Gustave was too cowardly to help a dying ten-year-old girl but was willing to drag an adult woman's body around just to check if she was still alive. He knew there was more to the story, so he kept Gustav in custody. Gustav spent a sleepless night at the station, and at 7.30 the next morning, the questioning resumed. It took another marathon session, but eventually Gustav's will was broken. He told Sebe what he'd been waiting to hear. At last. The Drummond's killer was Gustav's father, 77-year-old Gaston Dominici. It was almost exactly as Sabey expected. And maybe the only answer he actually wanted, that the most arrogant, vulgar member of the family, the man who reinforced all of Sebay's worst beliefs about rural people, was to blame. But the commissioner couldn't celebrate yet. He needed someone to back up Gustav's claim. He needed to talk to Clovis. Now, Clovis was older and more self-assured than his brother. And because he didn't live at the family farm, he'd mostly been kept out of the investigation. Unlike Gustav, he hadn't been interviewed for hours on end. But it didn't take long for Clovis to get scared especially once Sebay told him his brother had betrayed their father. Clovis refused to believe it until Gustave came into the room. When he told Clovis he'd implicated Gaston, the brothers hugged each other and wept. And just like that, Clovis changed his tune. He corroborated his brother's story, claiming that while Gustave was in jail, his father had privately admitted to committing the murders. It was what Sebé wanted to hear. But the question was, why had Gaston killed the family? Clovis and Gustave couldn't shed much light on this or exactly how the murders even happened. They were too afraid of their father to elaborate but they did recognize the murder weapon. They said Gaston had stashed the carbine out in his shed for years, but that it had gone missing after the killings. On November 13th, police arrested Gaston Dominici. The old man put on a show of being disinterested in the interrogation, so Sabey let him stew in jail overnight. The next morning, Gustave and Clovis gave separate statements, formally accusing their father. But Gaston wasn't going to fold so easily. At first, he claimed his entire family was against him, and he had nothing to do with the Drummonds. Then, he said Jack Drummond had attacked him that night, and that he'd been forced to use the carbine to defend himself. But when police pressed him to turn in a formal statement... He retracted this confession and insisted that Gustave was the killer instead. Gaston claimed he was only going to take the fall to protect his son. Confused, investigators went back and forth with Gaston for hours. and By the end of it, they managed to convince the old farmer to give a full confession. Gaston's confession went like this. On the night of the murders, he'd gone outside around 1 a.m. with his carbine to hunt when he saw Anne wearing a sheer dress. He approached her and started caressing her. And despite the language barrier, not to mention an age difference of over 30 years, he claimed they made passionate love. According to Gaston, Jack Drummond woke up found the two in a camping bed together just inches away from him, and attacked Gaston. With no other options, Gaston hastily grabbed his carbine and killed Jack. Afterward, he claimed to be in some kind of shock, which caused him to murder Anne and Elizabeth without thinking. The problems with this confession uh, probably don't need to be pointed out and there was no physical evidence to support Gaston's story. Doctors found no sign of recent sexual activity in Anne's post-mortem exam, and there was also no remnant of the sheer dress Gaston spoke of, Anne was found fully clothed. Sabé had to have known the confession was at least partly a lie, yet he allowed it to be written down and signed by Gaston. Well, maybe because he was afraid the old farmer would refuse to sign any other version of events. Which is exactly what happened. The next day, Gaston went back to his previous claim that he was only taking the fall. He essentially said he was falsely confessing to murder to protect Gustav, and by extension, his family. Investigators refused to let him have it both ways. He insisted that he give a straightforward confession and stick to it so gaston flipped again returning to his story about going hunting and propositioning Anne. he changed a few details but it still didn't add up first of all there's no way he would have gone hunting on a whim at 1am and the semi-automatic carbine was hardly a hunting weapon but beyond that It seemed Gaston hadn't used it. He didn't know how many rounds the magazine held, and though he claimed he shot Anne once or twice, she was actually struck three times. He also said he chased Elizabeth across a bridge before killing her, but Gaston walked with a cane. It's hard to believe he could have caught up with a panicked 10-year-old. Yet because the police were so eager to close the case... They overlooked all of this. They swallowed Gaston's ridiculous confession without pressing him about the inconsistencies. After all, Sebay and his cohort believed Gaston really was the killer. If he'd fudged the details in his confession, it was just a toy with them. Or maybe he didn't want to admit the real reason he killed the Drummonds, especially 10-year-old Elizabeth. The police chose to believe that rather than consider that he might not be guilty after all, they had a confession and that's all they wanted. Public fervor around the Dominici affair had mostly died out, but now that Gaston was officially arrested, the French press revived the story and changed their tune. After months of criticizing Sibet, They suddenly made him out to be a hero. The commissioner relished in his goodwill until November 1954, when Gaston's trial began and Gustave took the stand to retract his statement. Gustave stunned the public by repeating his original story, that he'd only heard gunshots on the night of the murders and hadn't gone out to investigate He no longer accused his father of killing the Drummonds and claimed his confession was signed under duress. It was a blow to the prosecution, but in the end, none of it changed the outcome. Gaston Dominici was convicted and sentenced to death. His lawyers immediately attempted to get a new trial. It never came, but in 1957... Gaston's sentence was commuted to life in prison. Three years later, he was given a presidential pardon. Around that time, concerns arose about the validity of his conviction, not to mention his age. At that point, Gaston was France's oldest prisoner, so the 84-year-old was given a compassionate release and lived out the rest of his life in the care of his family. In the end, Clovis was the only Dominici who didn't retract his accusation. For the rest of his life, he insisted Gaston was to blame for the murders and was cut off from the rest of his family. Now, more than 70 years after the Dominici affair, the truth seems murkier than ever, from the beginning, Commissioner Sibet decided the Dominicis were guilty and didn't stop hounding them until he had a confession. And that might be the greatest damage Sibet did. In his determination to convict the Dominices, he neglected all other possibilities. He met their stubbornness with his own, refusing to change course even when he got no results. On the other hand... If the killer wasn't a member of the family, it's hard to even guess who it might be. Aside from the conspiracy theory that Jack Drummond was a spy killed in an international feud, no other suspects emerged. Given the unbelievable confessions, we can safely say the Dominicis were hiding something. But it may not have been murder And because of the way the case was handled, we'll probably never know what it was. If this story teaches us anything, it's that small-town secrets are buried far deeper than anybody's. Thanks again for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. For more information on the Drummond family murders, we found The Dominici Affair, Murder and Mystery in Provence by Martin Kitchen, extremely helpful to our research. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. This episode was written by Terrell Wells. Edited by Amin Osman and Alex Garland, fact checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, and sound designed by Alex Button. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our head of production is Nick Johnson, and Spencer Howard is our post production supervisor. I'm your host, Carter Roy.